this to E-Kids. Head down to that way. Turn this on. All right. Our text before us today is Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 26. As we're finishing up the book of Acts, Lord willing, we'll finish that up here before the Christmas season, the Advent season, and then we'll have a Christmas uh, thing. So we are ending. Paul's third missionary journey is finishing, and then he's in Jerusalem. We've been hearing about this for a couple chapters, how he is uh, bent on going to Jerusalem, and he has made it when we come to this passage here today. I didn't mention, forgot to mention any announcements. This evening we have a members meeting. I want to encourage all the members to make sure they're there. If you're thinking about becoming a member, you're welcome to come and observe and talk about that thing. I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that in the message today as well. So, Acts chapter 21, verses twenty, verses 17 through 26 is the text we're considering this morning that's before us. And so let's read that together. We'll pray and dig in. This is God's word. Paul visits James. Verse 17. And when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are now under a vow. Take them, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men. And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple and giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is God's word. Let's pause and pray as we consider this. Father, I ask that you'd empty me, you'd hide me behind the cross and let me speak only what you'd want from your word. Thank you for the assurance that your word will work and not return void. Help us to all be encouraged and hunger. Give us ears to hear. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we would find these truths and apply it to our lives this week and all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been said of some preachers that Um, Sundays come about 
in a surprising, regular way. <laughs> they tend to happen every week, and there's always last Sunday and next Sunday. And so each week there's a temptation of what to share from God's Word, what to preach, and there's a temptation of that you know what people want, you know, that, that something inspirational, something positive, something that will be life-changing. Something that will, could be that Sunday for somebody. You know, I mean, there's always that Sunday. You know what I'm talking about? You know, there's that, that, that mom that's been trying to get her son to come to church for years, and it just happens to be that Sunday that he decides to come. Or the parent that is just exasperated with their teenage child, and they're thinking this might be the, the chance. Or th- it's that Sunday. Or you're thinking, man, I am just so fed up with this. I'm going to give it one more shot, and nobody else knows, but we'll see how it feels that Sunday. And, of course, you know and I know that this might be that Sunday for any one of us, right? So what do you say? And then, of course, you want to deal with the passage and be faithful to the text and obey God and things like that. And so we have before us this inspiring, life-changing, positive, inspirational message of a story of how Paul paid for the haircuts of four guys. We don't even know their names. We can just pray and say amen and have a good day there. Wasn't that good, right? Um, how many of you get excited about paying for haircuts? It's just that really just is your, you know, um, not the most inspiring and motivating thing in the world, right? But before us, we see a story of Paul comes to Jerusalem and all this has been moving up towards this and this end of the third missionary journey. And he pays for four guys to get their hair cut. And um, well, can I tell you something interesting about me? Maybe you play those games where let's say something interesting about somebody that I have only paid for one haircut in the last 17 years. Um, when I was in college, I worked at camp, and a, the guy that did the music at camp uh, cut my hair. And then I met this brown hair, brown-eyed girl from New Jersey, and uh, she learned how to cut hair. The one time I did pay for it was when we went to a haircut place because she wanted to see how they did it, and then she's been doing it ever since. And I am very excited to save all that money and one of these days, I need to, well, actually, I'll let her do the math because she likes to remind me of how much um, she sa- every time she wants to go buy an expensive coffee. Um, well, you do save money every month by not having to pay to get a haircut. So, you know. Um, but before that, I have many fond memories of getting haircuts. And I spent a lot of time with my grandfathers when I was little. And um, my one grandpa, that bird, that they had lived here in Northview, but they moved out to Lost Creek. And I remember when, when I was little going to the barber shop there in Lost Creek with my grandpa. And I think I was probably eight or nine years old before I knew there was a different haircut besides a flat top. Um, and, but I remember, I mean, they did not have good bedside manner, but I remember just enjoying that being around my grandpa and his retired friends and, uh, hearing them, you know, that's the old school where they lathered up your neck and gave you a nice shave. And that was just the good, good things. And my other grandpa, Draper Macaulay, that lived over in Philippi area. And, uh, I remember staying with him, going to a barber shop there in downtown Philippi. And um, a couple weeks ago, I was driving back from Beelington for one of my Draper's soccer games and drove by that old barbershop. And I thought, oh, you know, I remember going there and getting haircuts uh, with my grandpa. So there's some, you know, nostalgia about that. But 
It's not really like, you know, you know, unless you're Veggie Tales and you got a song about hairbrushes. There's nothing really, you know, what, what's there. But our text today deals with this. And on first glance, it doesn't seem like there's much there for us. So why not just skip it, right? I mean, is this just one of those incidental things here about how, you know, um, this happened along the way? What, I mean, what really does a story of Paul paying for four guys that we don't even know their names, paying for their haircuts 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with a bunch of Christians in north central West Virginia today? What's, how is this relevant to me? Uh, how is this relevant to you? I mean, what does four guys getting a haircut have to do? I mean, what can a 73-year-old established church in an area where Christians disagree over many different expressions of Christianity have to learn from four guys getting a haircut? What does this have to do with an old church with various other, with other churches around and Christians that have different opinions and preferences in a community that's splintered by different people that have different convictions of what the Christian life is supposed to look like and what's the best way to do church or the most biblical way to do church or the most effective way to minister to people or a way of going or whatever? What does this have to do with that? And I believe that this is uh, does have something very relevant for us. And I think this is also a testimony of the transparency of the Bible. See, when the Bible, when Luke gives us the narrative of what happens in the book of Acts, it's not like a filtered Instagram story. You know, it's not his story on Instagram where he only shows you when everything's great and everything's filtered with a nice little thing so there's no blemishes on the face. And, and it, it, he just tells you that there are some mundane things and all those big ideas and those... I mean, it's not always at Mars Hill. Sometimes it's paying for a haircut. And so um, it gives us a testimony of that. Last week we saw as, uh, the, as Paul is on stopping along the way and he's finished that discussion with the uh, Ephesian elders... And then he's coming along and he has one group of Christians by the Holy Spirit tell him not to go. And then the prophecy of Agabus. And we talked about how in all of that, the lesson for us is that if we're going to fulfill Christ's commission for us, we need to be willing, willing to face danger if necessary. And that we, in our fallen condition, we are allured by what Piper calls the myth of safety. Um, that we have this idol of security, and we talked a little about that with even some generational ideas and Generation Z, and, um, and that we are to be willing to face danger for the sake of the name. And if that's what we saw last week in that section on Paul's way and his last leg of this trip to Israel, what we're going to see today is that if we're going, not just if we're going to fulfill Christ's commission, we have to face danger for the sake of the name, but if we're going to love God's people, we need to be willing to deal with misunderstanding and disagreements for the sake of unity in the body. And so that's what we're going to look at today. I think this is a great example of Paul putting the principles that we've already seen in the book of Acts that he's shared and what he's written in other epistles into practice in a simple little episode of paying for haircuts. He had said in 1 Corinthians 9 that he wasn't under the law, but he made himself like those under the law, that he'd become... To the Jew, Jew, to the Greek, Greek, that he might win some. And he did this for the sake of the gospel. And I believe this is a great example of him putting that policy into practice. And so we have here Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, and he meets with James, and it results in a reconciliation between Paul and some of the Jewish Christians, or at least an attempt to have reconciliation between the suspicions that have come upon Paul. 
and salvation by grace alone and not by works of the law. And how fitting for Reformation Sunday that grace alone and not apart from the law has always been something under suspicion and misunderstood and misapplied and and when it looked differently than the way people thought it was supposed to look, that way the gospel worked out in their expression. So I want to ask, as we, before we jump into this, have you ever had people suspicious of you when you weren't doing anything wrong to your knowledge and there was no convincing them otherwise? Have you ever had that? People were suspicious and there's no convincing them. You're just in the wrong. That's how it is. Um, have you ever been accused of something falsely? Have you ever had someone say that you said something that you didn't say? And there was no opportunity to say that, no, I didn't say that. Have you ever had someone take something you said out of context or share it in an inappropriate way or misconstrue it? When we have things like that happen, there's an impulse in us and what we want to do, and I'm going to preach to myself a little bit today if that's okay with you, um, that, that reveals what our real priorities are. And we see that come out in Paul, that his real priority is love for the gospel, and love for the unity of God's people. And so false accusations should not deter us from pursuing those two things. In fact, Paul, uh, Peter would say in 1 Peter 3.16, he says, having a good conscience, so that we, when, we, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good that it should be God's will than for doing evil. So, it, we uh, there there is an effect of the fall upon all of our minds that we are going to misunderstand and and be misunderstood by somebody. Any of you that are married, know this is going to happen. You think you're. I was mentioning to Steve this morning that there's. I've had times where my wife would come and say, "Does this outfit look nice?" And I would inaccurately say, "Well, yeah, actually, that does." And that word actually, that I thought was just some type of adjective, was taken to be something totally different and implied upon previous outfits, right? And, and it was like, there is no winning here, right? And my intent was actually to say it actually looked good. And, 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 and so we've all, have you ever been there? I mean, am I the only crazy one here? Are you guys not? Okay, okay, all right. You've been there. And so um, we, just by being human, we're going to be misunderstood and we're going to misunderstand. And suspicious, being um, our suspicions reveal what's important to us. Okay, so let's, let's walk through this story and see uh, if we can come to a lesson about this. So Paul arrives and meets James and the elders here in Jerusalem. This is verses 17 to 22. Now, verse 18, we're introduced to James. Now, James and, he's there, and the elders. Now, this is not James the Apostle. This is, he was killed in um, Acts chapter 16. We saw that there. This is James who had become a leader in the church, who had spoken the final verdict there and infu- in, uh, uh, influenced things at the Jerusalem Council. And he is one of the elders. And he's kind of functioning as what we might call in our language today the senior pastor um, uh, there uh, in that language. So we see this there in Acts 15. We see it in Galatians 1. Paul talks about this when he goes back. Now the Jerusalem council, remember they, 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 Paul had come back there. They were dealing with what do we do about these, uh, uh, these Jew- Gentile believers that, had not, that were not being circumcised. 
And they had Peter speak, and then they also had James speak. And what most commentators would note there is that Peter was representing the, the apostles, and James was representing this leadership group that was emerging in the church of the pastors, the elders, and James was representing them. But by the time we get to James Acts 21, there's a transition that's happened in the church, that the apostles are moving away from the primary leadership role in the church, and the main leadership role in the church is this group of pastors or elders that we see, and James is the spokesman and the others are there. Now, we know from history and some other things that there could have, because of this, this is a large church in Jerusalem, that there was up to 70 of these men that were the elders of the church in Jerusalem. But they meet together, and th- there's some things we know from this episode, from this passage, some things we don't know that, that Luke will mention later in chapter 24 and, and, and also in Romans, that one of the things that Paul was doing as he'd been going around the churches of Asia Minor was collecting a gift, a benevolence gift, an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. And so he brings that gift, and he has a meeting with them, and they share reports. And so he comes, and um, he had asked the church in Rome, in Romans, to pray for Jerusalem that they would receive the gift well. That he had good intentions of bringing that gift to the church at Jerusalem, but he wanted to make sure that his good intentions were not misunderstood. That it wasn't seen as a way to kind of buy influence or lord over something or uh, however else a, a gift might, might. He really wanted it to be to help their need, but also as a sign of solidarity. This offering that he was bringing is important. Now, John Stott said it this way, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the use of money can be a tangible token of love. It was a tangible token of love for the churches of Asia Minor, the Gentile churches, to be bringing this gift to support benevolence to the church at Jerusalem. A sign of solidarity between them. And then it's the text told us of reports that were given by Paul and then by James and the elders here. And so, and then there's a tension that comes about, and we see the resolution to that tension. But I want you to note first that they met. The fact that they met is an incredible thing. The fact that they actually got together to talk about it. And there's wisdom in the fact that they knew there was going to be suspicion. They knew there was going to be problems with Paul coming and tendencies so that they met together in a smaller group before it went out before the entire church. Um, They didn't just ignore it and talk behind each other's back and share things on Facebook about each other, and make passive-aggressive memes about each other on Instagram. They, they, they got in a room and talked about it, and this is what they do. And so the reports, a couple things I want you to note there, or Paul gives his report first. It's a very detailed report. The ESV said that one by one, he, he declared the things that happened uh, in his journeys, in this third missionary journey. Or other ways of saying that is he declared particularly. Means that he gave a detailed report. It wasn't just, hey, we went here, we went to Ephesus, we went stop by Corinth, we went here. He, he said, hey, we went here and this happened. We went to Berea and here's how the Bereans received the word of God. Hey, we went over to Athens and this is what happened there. This person then, oh, and I went to this one place and I, my sermon was going really long and this one guy named Eutychus fell out of the window. And they probably all chuckled at that while they're having this meeting and hearing this report. And he gives this report in detail. Paul gives a detailed report. All the things. And then he gave an account. Um, 
but he gives a very God-centered report. He gave an account of what the Lord had done. It wasn't about him. It was about what God had done through his ministry. His, it wasn't a bragamony. It didn't read like someone's resume or their LinkedIn profile about themselves. You ever read some of those? I've read some of those. Have you ever hired anybody and you get applications? I, I, I've read where someone was like in charge of like unloading a truck at a dock and the way they worded it for an application, you'd have thought they were like the chief officer over all the distribution for the military to all of Afghanistan, and they were unloading one truck at a feed store, you know? But they made it just sound incredible about themselves on their resume or whatever it was. And, um, uh, and, but Paul doesn't do that. He's just saying, hey, God did this. So it goes back to the idea of sola dea gloria, to the glory of God alone. It's not about me. God won't share his glory with anybody. He's not going to, and we need to learn that lesson. He's not going to share the glory with a church or a, a system or a denomination or a particular style or a person or a particular leader. He gets the glory. So he gives this detailed report. Um, and then we see their response. It's a godly response we see that they give them. That they, verse 20 says, when they heard it, they glorified God. They praised God. Now, this isn't just like walking through and stating the obvious. This is actually seeing what a godly response to seeing what God is doing amongst other places looks like. Because this isn't how we always respond. So I ask, how do we respond when we hear about what God is doing in other places, in other churches, in other styles differently than us? Do we have a grudge or maybe a little skepticism? Well, that church is really growing. They must be doing something compromising over there. They're probably handing out beer with Bible verses on the can. That's what they're doing. Yeah. We know about those kind, right? Um, do you rejoice when others do something better than you? I mean, isn't that what the gospel is? That it's about God, it's not about us? I mean, are we okay to be the little church that sends missionaries somewhere and sees them see the fruit and build the buildings and do the good things and, and to truly rejoice when you see an email or a letter about what, how God's blessing them? That's what they're doing here. Um, and, and this is where what we do in members' meetings. This is one of the reasons why members' meetings are important and why it's not just a fly-through, get, get it done five minutes because we want to report and celebrate and worship with what God is doing here at our church. We want to hear what is God doing in the Awana program and that we can genuinely worship about that, to hear that there's two or three neighborhood kids from right around here coming and that, and that they've been coming for this or that or to hear about a young lady that just accepted Christ in our school or to hear, because so, even in the worst years, sometimes, and, and I have to do this myself because I can be kind of the Debbie Downer too. You can think, man, well, this year was the pits, man. I mean, we, attendance went down, giving went down, this went down, everything went down, the roof almost came down. I mean, I'm picking on Reese a little bit, but um, you, you could hear that story later. Um, I mean, everything was coming down and you can even think about the worst year ever. And then you can think, but wait a minute. And you think, well, what did God do? And you're like, well, this person came into this, and this person happened, and this person got right with God about this, and this person. And then you're like, wow, we have a lot to rejoice in. And that's what we want to do when we come together in members' meetings. 
Here's what God's doing here. And here's a need here in the nursery. And here's a need here. And here's what God's doing here. And let's rejoice together with it and what God's doing. And so, shameless plug, come to the members meeting tonight. But then we come to the second round of the reports. Is James gives a report. And in James' report, he, he, he gives the idea of some tension that has happened because of they've been misinformed about Paul. And so he says here, verse 20, he says, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? So James gives a report, and it's wonderful that thousands have come. And, and James gives, he introduces this tension. Now, Paul and James, I want you, what should go here so we get to the point. Paul and James are on the same page regarding salvation. There is no tension between the book of James and the book of Romans. There's no tension between Galatians and James. They are on the same page regarding salvation. They're on the same page regarding the Jerusalem Council from Acts 15. They both agreed to this. So this is not about salvation for them. This is about discipleship. This is not about the moral law. This is about traditional customs. It's about teaching the Jews and the Gentiles. Like, well, okay, we know you're going to do this with the Gentiles, but what are you doing with the Jews? And they've been misinformed about you. It's not about doctrine. It's about practice. There, that's where divisions usually lie. It's not in the doctrine, but in the practice of. And both of these men, Paul and James, are willing to make some concessions out of love for God and to preserve the unity. And I am going to ask you a question that you can chew on this week. And I think I have an opinion. And since I'm here, I'm going to share my opinion. And you can share your opinion another time. Of which one was right? Was Paul right or was James right? And um, did James compromise or was, did Paul compromise or was James just being political and being a wimp? Uh, And there's, I've read people on both sides this week and people I agree with on lots of things that uh, we're on different sides of that, about that with these two men with it here. And um, and anyways, you can hang on for a few minutes and I'll tell you what, what, what I'm, my guess. Here in the end, but he gives, so he, so he teaches, it's about, so it's about practice, not doctrine. And so, James gives three factors that are leading to tension in the church. Three factors, and they're listed here, that there's thousands that are coming, becoming believers. They are, too, secondly, zealous for the law. And thirdly, they have been misinformed about Paul. Because the gospel was in a different context than what they knew. So they were seeing the gospel expressed differently. And when the gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone is like this, it becomes suspect, suspicion by religious people. Now, before I jump into that, I do want to give a sidebar about communication and arguments. Um, Some had distorted Paul's message of salvation. Paul's salvation, Paul's message was about faith alone, was about salvation. It wasn't about customs and things like that. So what they had heard about what it's been going around all of Jerusalem while Paul's been out doing the work of evangelism and they've been sitting around Jerusalem, was it true what they were saying about Paul? No, 
Did anyone take the time to actually ask Paul? No. Did they give Paul a fair shot to represent himself? No. And there's a lesson for us there that we shouldn't answer a matter, as Proverbs says, before we hear the whole. Um, that we, and now all of us like to think that we consider both sides. But if you haven't actually talked to the person on the other side, you haven't. And the other thing is that asking questions is so much more important than, ask, than making accusations. And someone said it this way, that an accusation will harden the will, but a question will stimulate the conscience. And so we're all going to make mistakes when we make judgments on people. And so it's better to go to that person and say, hey, I heard you said this, is that true? Or hey, I, um, this happened, and uh, what were you meaning to have happen there? Or I, saw, I heard this, what, what, can you explain it to me? That is so much better than coming to an accusation and coming to them then, because we're all going to make mistakes in judgment. I've made them, you've made them, I'll continue to make them. But I'd rather be on the side of giving people the benefit of the doubt and obeying what First Corinthians says, that love doesn't think the evil or puts the best interpretation possible on it than I would in coming to the conclusion that they were just out to get you or something like that. So... So no, this accusation against Paul is not true. Paul's teaching that works do not save or sanctify. He's not saying never ever do any of the things that are Jewish. You know, stay away from mom's house for Hanukkah. You know, he's not saying that. Um, he's saying you're not saved or sanctified by the law. So another important lesson with that one was when you're in a disagreement or in a debate, seek to represent the other person and their views as well as they would, if not better. They will respect you so much. So be honest. Don't speak sarcastically or draw. And I'm telling you, Protestant evangelicals, we got to be careful about this because I, we, we say things that aren't true. We say things, well, you know, all those this people and they da da da, da and we make fun of them about something and we have some little cliche word we, we, we've repeated for, you know, 20 years and we, that's what we say about them. And um, be careful that we're honest. Seek to clarify with the person themselves about what they believe and what they teach. Um, and we see this all around us in the media, you know, about certain, uh, this product's better than that product, this one's junk, this one's great, especially right now in the political season. I mean, this person doesn't like puppies, you know, and then you're going to get like five mailings that week about that, you know, that they don't like puppies, and, you know, or what they voted to give themselves a raise, and as Brian Regan said, well, wouldn't you? I mean, if I had a, you know, I mean, come on, you know, like, um, uh, what, what, they, they got kids to feed too. And so um, with, with all of that going on this, in the political season, Christians should be in a stark difference than the world. We don't just share things because, oh, that sounds like a cool thing to share without knowing if it's actually accurate. Uh, we shouldn't be like that. So anyway, sidebar aside, Back verse 23, we see the recommendation that James gives. So James comes and he says, do what we say. I've got this idea for you to go pay for these hair guys for haircuts. Okay, so, so James basically says to Paul, hey, hey, Paul, we've got a PR campaign planned. And Paul, we want you to fund it and execute it at your own expense. Now, don't you just love it when people have great ideas for something that you could do uh, and you could pay for, right? You love the you could do's, right? You know what you could do? And, and, and so I'm sure Paul's feeling a little bit like, wait, I, get, I just brought you guys an offering and now you're asking me to put the bill for this? Can't you just reimburse me for it or something? I mean, come on. 
You know, uh, what's the deal here? I just brought this offering all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, and now I have to go pay for the haircuts? Some, some great church you guys are, right? Paul could be thinking this way. Um, and then they cite that, well, hey, we wrote, and they're citing the stipulations of the Jerusalem Council back from Acts 15. The verdict was delivered. And, and, and Paul's in agreement with that. He's actually been living that way. He's been doing that. I mean, he'd actually, back in chapter 18 of Acts, he himself had his head shaved, part of this Nazarite vow that, the, that they're asking these men to undergo. He had done that back in, um, in Acts 18. Remember the Nazarite vow? I've seen a few time, other places. There was a temporary vow that had three provisions. They were to abstain from anything made from grapes, like wine, total absence from wine. They were not to touch dead bodies. They were to let their hair grow. So, you know, John the Baptist, Samson, these things, these men are doing this, and, and evidently Paul had gone through that back in Acts 18. They're free to choose the length of time of their vow, but when they ended, they were supposed to go to the temple and make an offering. And so Paul had done that, and he was probably bringing that there, and that's what's going on here. And, and he'd even responded to them and what they'd learned from the Jerusalem Council by limiting his liberty to expand his ministry that we talked about back then. The letter from the Jerusalem Council had an impact, and he encouraged the churches, and his response to how he dealt with Timothy, even though Timothy was only half Jewish, and how he would uh, have him circumcised, and then the test case he had with Titus, and he was willing to limit his liberty to expand his ministry. So when all this comes up, Paul's been overly loving here. And as Luther said one time about this, he said, Paul was strong in the faith and soft in love. As concerning faith, he, we ought to be invincible and more hard. If it might be, then are the adamant stone. But as touching charity, we ought to be soft and more flexible than the reed or leaf that is shaken in the wind and ready to think. So, or as Newton said in 1799, Paul was a reed in non-essentials and an iron pillar in essentials. So basically, Paul is like, he's willing to cave on these non-essential issues. He's willing to concede. And so he's been doing that. So then they say, Paul, we got this proposal for you. Now, Paul's, could, Paul's response could have been many of these things. I mentioned that he could have been like, hey, I just brought you guys this huge offering. You want me to spend more of my own money? Or he could have said, <coughs> hey, James, brother, you've gotten 70 pastors here. Why didn't you guys correct this rumor going around about me? I mean, what are you guys doing in your Sunday school classes after all? What are you doing in those small groups? Letting this rumor go on about me. Um, why have you let this, these people be misinformed? I mean, I mean, James knows they're misinformed about Paul. Hey, James, I mean, why am I the one who has to bail you out? Man up, tell your people they've been, they've been bearing false witness against Brother Paul, who, by the way, is bringing them an offering, right? You know, but James, Paul doesn't do any of that. Paul concedes, and he takes these men the next day, and he pays for their haircuts. Paul responds by following the suggestion. So, as I mentioned before, did Paul do the right thing? What do you think? Did he, a lot of people think he compromised, that Paul compromised here. I believe that Paul right here is giving us a wonderful example of tact for the Christian life. Tact, the definition is, the ability to appreciate the delicacy of a situation and do or say the kindest thing, the kindest or most fitting thing. So the ability to appreciate the delicacy of a situation and do or say the kindest or most fitting thing. 
So when witnessing, we need to have tact. We need to have tact to not be bragging, to make sure when we talk to someone that we're including ourselves in the category of sinners, um, that we're aware of people's tendency to feel embarrassed when we're talking about things, um, that we don't offend people, you know? If you're talking to someone who's, um, you know, maybe from a different denomination or a different church that you don't bash their church before you get to Jesus, right? Um, I'll give you a great example. Mike's up in the sound room. Uh, Mike and I have been doing some visitation stuff around. And there's been a couple times now that we've been in a discussion where someone was wanting to kind of debate stuff about Christianity and apologetics. And it was kind of getting, you know, tense. And, and Mike, I thought it was incredible what Mike did. He's just like, hey, can I just tell you what happened to me? Like, I was a little kid, and we had this thing called Awana, and my uncle was there. And my uncle influenced me, and I heard, learned about how I was a sinner. And you know what? It totally diffused it. And that was a great act of tact. That was a wonderful thing there. I think Paul is doing something very similar here. Tact is not compromise. It's a way to show love. So what are Paul's motives here? This is where we get to the main point of the passage and it's, we get to, the, the, to lo- the message, the lesson of the message this morning. No, I'm not saying everything else was introduction. I'm saying this is the point. How do you handle false accusations and misunderstandings? How we respond to these shows what's really important to us. I want to clear my name. I want to clarify the situation. I want to set them straight. I want to get the facts out there. What if I'm wrong, or I, I want to point out, if you are wrong, you want to point out all the times they've been wrong, right? You want to make sure that they know that they're the pot calling the kettle black, right? But now, there is a time for clarification. There is a time for a time for that. But how we react most of the time and the emotions that come from out of us reveal what's driving us. And I believe what's driving Paul here is a commitment to two things, the gospel and the expansion of the gospel, and secondly, the unity of God's people and a love for the church. And so I ask you, are you committed to the gospel and the expansion of the gospel and a love for God's people and the unity of his people in the church? And so Paul's desire for sola fide, faith alone, the gospel, abandoned from the no law part of salvation, not being part of it, did not mean that he thought there should be no Jewish expression of it. And they needed to give up all of their heritage. He was just clinging to the main thing. He was getting it for the long game. The gospel's long-term purpose and the unity of God's people. That this great commission he wanted to do in the spirit of the great commandment, the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment with tact. He, he played the long game. I mean, he could have said, come on guys, haven't you read my books, Romans and Galatians? They explain all this, Right? Um, I'll do a book signing so I can pay for these haircuts, right? And no, he didn't do that. Because, so why did these Jewish people, why did these Jewish Christians continue in sacrifices and all this temple stuff? Well, a few reasons. One, habits are hard to change. If you're used to doing something every year, you just do it. You don't even know why you do it sometimes. There's also a biblical precedent. They're like, well, this does teach us about Jesus, that Jesus was the sacrifice, so we'll just keep doing this while it's here. But there's also probably a part of heritage. Like, this is part of their heritage. Are you wanting to abandon their heritage? Um, And Paul didn't see a reason for them to set that aside. 
In fact, he was in it for the long game because at, one point, at some point down the road, God's going to have someone, whether Paul or Luke or somebody else, write the book of Hebrews, which basically, as Donald Barnhouse said, the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell them to stop being Hebrews, right? Um, that you don't have to be all Jewish about everything Christian. That Jesus is better than all of these things. So why is God so patient with these Jewish Christians still doing sacrifices? Why is Paul so patient with them? Why isn't he just facing this head on? Because Paul's in it for the long game. Because he knows that only God can change people. You can't force people to change. He stresses only faith in Christ and that the law can't save. And he also stresses that the Gentiles aren't going to be required to come back to your requirements. And he leaves everything else go. And he exercises tact. And you know, God is the ultimate teacher because God can teach that lesson better than Paul ever could. Because just a few years after this, in 70 AD, you know what happens in 70 AD? The general Titus comes in and Jerusalem is sacked. It's raised. I mean, the temple is raised to the ground. And the, the, the story of Masada and the last holdout there of the zealots and those there. So the, after 70 AD, the temple is gone. The mosaic pattern of worship is gone, and the Jewish Christians are forced to leave and be scattered, so they're, never, they're no longer one of the preeminent parts of the Christian movement. And so, should we see this, should we make concessions or compromises like Paul did? I think I'm going to use the word concession, not compromise, because I'm a conservative and I hate the word compromise. Compromise is, I feel like, when you're giving up something that you believe that's like a doctrine. A concession is just, hey, I'm conceding this isn't the biggest deal. And so, yes, should we make concessions? I think yes. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. Was he right to do it? I don't want to be his judge. Um, Does it always work to make concessions? Well, obviously, it doesn't work out for Paul. In the next section, we're gonna, he's, next week, he's put in prison. Um, look at the outcome of this. It really backfires on him. But it's always right to live in this way, no matter what the outcome, to have a love for the gospel and a love for the unity of God's people. It's always right to do that. And so, salvation by grace alone, apart from the works of the law, is suspicious. And sometimes... We need to go the extra mile to avoid offending people, especially when the gospel is at stake. Paul was willing to make some concessions on these non-essential points that he might win some, as he said in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those that are without the law as without the law not being without the law toward God, but under law towards Christ, that I may win those that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, and to the might that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker with you. The gospel's worth it. Relationships can be a blessing. But when you have a relationships with people, they bring pain and inconvenience and they open us up to misunderstanding. That's why most of our heroes we've seen from afar. The, the, the traveling person that you don't really know their real life is always the person that's your hero. When you see the real life them and the ins and outs, that's when they become less than a hero. And, 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 and we don't like that because we realize they have a shadow just like we do. And so... 
what to do when we're rejected and we're misunderstood. What to do when we're misunderstood. I mean, is the, solution, the solution isn't, okay, we're going to go it alone, we're going to do this. No, Paul's solution was to go the extra mile. We can't escape the fact that some Christians are not going to understand the path we're taking. But that's not an excuse to, to separate and go it alone apart from these other Christians. So, did Paul do the right thing? I believe he did. Um, whether he did or not, I don't think anyone can doubt his love for the brethren and how serious he took the unity of the church. He was willing to deal with misunderstanding for the sake of unity. And this example of Paul was this policy that he'd had all along. And so I ask us, do you act or live in a way that does not cause offense or encourages fellowship between various groups of Christians? I mean, do you know, like Paul would say in Romans 14, I'm not going to do this if I know it's going to cause offense to my brother. If I know it's going to be a barrier to somebody, I can work with them on that. Do you live that way? Because we're, we tend to be very tribal and cliquish, right? We want, we're, we're tribal, we're cliquish, and Paul's not having, he wants to have this unity of the body. If this was a modern thing going on here, you know what the solution would have been? Well, some of you think we have to do this with Jewish customs. Some think this. Well, you know what? We just need to have two different congregations. We need to have two different services. We need to have two different styles. We need to have two different this. We need to just separate for the good of everything. Paul didn't have that mentality. So how should we respond when Christians in different churches or express Christianity differently in a biblical sense? Do we have the idea like the secular world does? Well, the survival of fittest, man, change or die, man. If you're not going to get with the times, you're just going to die. I mean, we ain't going to be grandma's church anymore. No, 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 no. Get those pews and none of those hymnals and get that out of there. This ain't your grandma's church. But the problem is grandma needs to go to church somewhere, right? Is a solution. We don't want none of that new stuff, that singing off the wall stuff and the screens and whatever, you know. We need to have two different services is what we need, right? One with the bongo music and the other with the organ, right? Just make sure we have things decent in order, rightly dividing the word of truth. We'll just have different everything, right? That's not Paul's attitude. We didn't have this change or die mentality towards these Jewish Christians. I think this is a good example of for us to not give up the establishment to give up on old churches, to form some new thing and let the old die. He was willing to waste his time with those that were resistant to change. You go to a church growth conference, well, you young guys just don't waste your time with those people that are resistant to change. Well, what's Paul doing right here? He is wasting his time with people that are resistant to change. He's paying for haircuts for people that are resistant to change. And I think there's a lesson there for us that show love for the gospel and love for others. And you know what? How you show love for the gospel and love for other people shows up in everything. It shows up in how, what time you show up for church. You know? It shows up in where you park, how you talk to people, whether you get involved, whether you come back for things, whether you greet one another. Um, it shows up in all those things. Um, it's important to us. We need to be willing to deal with misunderstandings for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of unity in the church. I think there's some huge lessons for us here in this passage for us. So what does the story about 2,000 years ago, Paul paying for four guys to get their hair cut, teach us? It teaches us that we need to love the gospel 
exercise Christian tact and love for other people, and, we t- and to teach us that we desire the unity of the whole church, and that we need to be patient with one another and work through our misunderstandings for the sake of the gospel. And if we're willing to do this, the outside world is going to see and it's going to magnify this gospel that's so precious to us that it makes it attractive to believe this message that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for this passage. And Lord, an odd thing, but huge lessons here for us of Paul's desire for unity in the body, and him willing to not defend himself, but to go the extra mile to show love to keep the unity. Lord, if he had not done this, we may, the church may not look like anything we know of it today. So I thank you for his example in this. Thank you for his charity, his tact. And Lord, would you, through the gospel, give us that wisdom. Give us that love that he spoke about in 1 Corinthians to bear all things, to believe all things, to endure all things, to be patient. Lord, I pray that you would give us a church that loves each other. Lord, as we interact with one another now, that we all have different opinions and preferences that we would defer one to another. Lord, I pray even as we hear reports of what you're doing that we would be like the church here, rejoicing and giving glory to God of what you're doing in our midst. We thank you so much, Lord, for the one that doesn't know you. I pray that you would draw them, convince them, and bring them to know Christ in this gospel. Before we say amen, I just want to give you a chance to respond. Just in the quietness. you're here and you don't know Christ this might be a strange thing to you but the fact that this message was so important to Paul to go these extra miles these extra steps to preserve the unity of the body should make it attractive to you that this is a message that you are a sinner that you cannot save yourself and that Jesus has done every bit of it that there's no work you can do to add to it that you, if you would repent of that sin and depend totally upon him, you can be saved and have right standing with him, a right relationship with him, and be baptized into his body. And we invite you to do that. We're in the quietness of your seat. Our God, we are very much beneath this. I am very much beneath this. By your grace, through your spirit, would you help us to live with this love for the gospel and the unity of your people that Paul did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you have a wonderful week. Take some time in fellowship. Those of you that are helping with the packing downstairs, um, head down for that. God bless. Have a great one.